welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Today we're talking about the first sign, the wedding of Cana. And um, as we look at this, we're going to see we're going to see some things about Jesus I think that are pretty cool. Um, one is that he, he's a problem solver. Okay? And two, that he's a compassionate problem solver. So have you guys ever, you guys know the people that are like good problem solvers generally? Like there's the people in life that are like, they always fix the problem. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So there's, and then there's some people that are problem solvers, but they're like lack compassion in their problem solving. So like my sister, like her natural gifting is to be a problem solver, but she's not very nice about it, right? Um, that's what my, when my sister is. Haley, she actually used to have a cabin leader. She told me this story, uh, and it wasn't a cabin like this, but she had a cabin leader at camp, and she was like 10 years old, and you know the, you know the rule uh, for girls, you have to have shorts that are like certain lengths and stuff like that, right? Just so everybody stays modest. Well, this cabin leader of Haley's, uh, she was very good at keeping the rules and very good at problem solving when someone broke the rules, but she did it to an extent that was a little harsh. So she would actually carry around a, a small ruler and she would go up to all the girls and, and stick it on their leg and see if their shorts were long enough. And then Haley, she had shorts that weren't quite long enough one time. You know, it's just the ruler was just a little bit longer than the, than the shorts. And instead of being compassionate about it and fixing the problem in the right way, this leader uh, was very harsh to Haley and she still remembers it and she still... I don't think she's bitter about it. I don't know. She's not here, so maybe she is. But she still remembers it as someone that was very mean and harsh, um, even though she solved the problem. And today we're going to see Jesus, and Jesus solves problems, but he does it compassionately. And so we're going to look at it. We're going to look at this problem that Jesus solves, and it's actually the very first sign. And I know we don't have handouts, but you guys uh, can write that down. This is the first sign, because that will probably... I mean, you guys may just remember it, too. But that's probably going to be on the... Uh, Jeopardy, that we're, that's coming up pretty soon. So let's look at this. Let's look at uh, verse 1 in uh, John chapter 2. And we'll read 11 verses, and then we'll get into We'll pray and we'll get into it. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was wet there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. And the mother said to the servants, Whatever he says, you do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish customs of purification containing 24, or 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill these water pots uh, and fill them with water. And so they went and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And the head waiter, when he tasted it, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, 
Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested or showed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we just come before you, and we thank you for this day you've given to us. And we thank you for the book of John, and just uh, all the really cool stuff that's in it, and all the uh, ways that we can see who you are, and the ways that we can understand you better. I pray that today, that we would understand that Jesus, you are the problem solver, and that you are the one that gets us through everything that we need to get through and the one that allows us to go through what we do go through God. We thank you and we pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at uh, today is the problem. Okay, there's a problem here, and this is in <laughs> verses 1 through 3. Uh, I'll read it again. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary, Jesus' mother, is at this wedding. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And the, when the wine ran out, the mother, so Mary, Jesus said, we have no wine. And so there's this problem that comes. The problem is that there's no wine. There's no wine. Uh, before we get into the aspect of what the problem is, I think we need to look at verse 1 and say it says on the third day there. And Brent talked a lot about this last week in his lesson. You guys went over geography and things like that. So this time frame, after hearing his lesson, I'm not sure what you guys came up with on you know, on your own, but uh, there's several theories on this, on which day this is, because basically, if you guys remember, we're going to rewind a little bit, okay, there's this flow that John, the writer, gives us, okay, John the Baptist is in the first two days, remember, and he turns over some of his disciples to Jesus, and Jesus meets these, um, these two disciples, and he meets, or Andrew and John, okay, then he meets Peter, and he meets Philip, and he meets Nathaniel, and, and that's through a series of days, Right, And then he says, now on the third day. And so many people think this is the third day from uh, when he met Andrew, or not Andrew, sorry, when he met Nathaniel. Uh, they may think it's the third day from when he met John, because John is the one writing it. And so either way, this is a few days. This is within that same time frame, basically, of when Jesus is first starting to meet these disciples. And does anybody remember the five guys that are with him? I just mentioned most of them. Actually, I just mentioned all of them. Anybody give me one of them? One of the disciples that's with him. Andrew. Andrew, okay? There's one. Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Peter. John. John. Last one. Philip. Philip. Okay, so those are the five guys that we know for sure are with him. I think I have a slide. How many disciples are with him? We know these five are. Okay, I think we can pretty much assume none of the other major ones are with him. Uh, some people say they were, some people say they weren't. And then some people say there may have been other disciples following him that weren't the main 12, right? But if you look at the flow, this is the first time Jesus is really starting to meet these guys and follow them. And so I don't think it would be uh, far to say that there's only five, and it's these five. Um, I actually, that's the view I take, is that there's only five guys with them at this point, and they're these five guys. So he was invited and his disciples, I think those five guys, or whoever was following him at that point, it could have been more, are invited to go to this wedding. And his mom is there as well. She was invited. Um, I, I was reading a commentary on this, uh, just this passage, and there's this really cool note this guy said. He said that the fact that Jesus just goes to this wedding, it shows us a little bit about Jesus. Okay, it shows that he wasn't some strange monk recluse 
that goes off by himself and is never with anybody or anything. He's actually living life and doing life with people, which I thought was very interesting and a cool thing to think about. That's a side note. Um, uh, but he's invited this wedding. So what do weddings look like back in those days? Well, there's, uh, you could say, a five-step process to the wedding back in the day or back in this time period. So there's the betrothal period, which you guys know about, right? So they like betrothed. They get betrothed to one another. So it's like, you know, I'm going to marry her. She's going to marry me. Uh, but they're not married yet, but it's still very uh, binding. Okay, so there's this betrothal. And then there's this basically like kind of like a 12-month prep, okay? kind of like a year prep where um, the uh, groom, I can't think of the word, the groom goes back to his father's house and gets ready for the bride, gets the house ready, builds, maybe adds on to his father's house or prepares a room in some way. Uh, and usually that's about 12 months-ish. Okay, then he comes back for the bride, okay, and he gets her and he takes her back uh, to his father's house. And then there's a seven-day celebration, um, uh, for the couple, basically, okay? So this would be part of that seven-day celebration that we're looking at here, the wedding part. So this wedding is a seven-day celebration that they go to, and it's a very joyous, it's a very exciting time, um, but during this exciting time, there's a problem that occurs. They run out of wine. So why do they run out of wine, okay? And why is that important? Okay, first off, maybe, okay, there's several options why they could run out of wine. Uh, these, this is not an exhaustive list. But maybe they were poor and they couldn't afford enough wine for how many people were going to be there. Okay, it could have been that. It could have been bad planning. It probably was. Okay, and we'll see in a second. The groom is expected to have everything ready for the feast, uh, for the celebration, and so um, it could have just been bad planning on his part. Some people even say that because Jesus' disciples came and there were a lot, they'd say there's more than five because so many of them came, they ran out of wine. Um, so that could be a possibility. But either way, they run out of wine and there's a problem. And so why is this a problem? I have a couple quotes for you. This is Constable and Durrett, and they have this quote. This is what they say about it. It said, the loss, um, talking about the wine, okay, the loss would not only have brought shame and social disgrace, but also financial embarrassment since the groom had a legal responsibility in that culture to provide a suitable feast for their guests. So basically what these guys are saying is like he was expected to not run out of anything. And when he did, it would be a financial embarrassment because they think maybe he couldn't pay for it. And it would be socially irresponsible because basically he's supposed to be ready to get married and ready to provide for his new bride, but he can't even provide for the guests. So this is a very awkward situation for the groom. And I want us to understand this because Jesus knows all this. And we're going to see it. And he knows everything that's going on. And he cares about people. Okay, But this is a very awkward situation at this point. They're out of wine. So the groom is going to be running around frantic, not sure what to do. Okay, And then here's another quote, again, by the same guy. He says, our bridegroom stood to lose financially. Okay, So he's going to actually lose financially. Say up to about half the value of the presents. Uh, Jesus and his party ought to have brought. And so like, basically what he's saying there is because people would bring stuff to give to the groom and bride, they wouldn't give it because they would think he's an irresponsible groom. Okay, So he not only would be shamed and not only would he be looked at as irresponsible, but he also would lose out financially because of the culture and the way that it worked. Okay, And so all of this tells me several things. One, it's a bigger deal than we think. Okay, when we read this story, we say, oh, they ran out of wine. 
and Jesus gave him wine, right? I mean, how many of us actually think about how disgraceful and horrible it would be to be in the groom's shoes at that point? Okay, it would be a really, really big deal. Okay, no one, they would want no one to know, no guests to know or understand um, that they ran out. Okay, which is also important because who knew that they ran out? Mary. What does that mean? Tell us about Mary. Or she was close to him. She was close to the bride, somehow close to the bridal party, most likely, unless she just heard it through gossip somehow, and the word got out, which could be that. But it seems like Mary cares about the groom and about what's going on, and it seems like she may be on an inside track and knows this fact. So Mary obviously cares about it when she comes to Jesus, and she says, hey, they have no wine. Okay, <clears throat> She obviously cared um, about this couple getting married, and she knows that Jesus cares about people too, Okay, I think. Um, you know, some people might say, and I think it, it may be true as well because of what Jesus has answered her, but some people might say that G Mary is wanting Jesus to start everything and kind of almost set up the kingdom right now because everybody, you know, her whole life would have been telling her, like, hey, Jesus was born in adultery. Jesus was born out of wedlock. You're harlot like these kind of things would be the things that Mary would be hearing because of the Immaculate Conception and so some people and I agree with them might say she's just trying to come out and say hey you need to start now you need to prove everybody wrong and I think that's part of it but I think part of it too based on the context is that she does care about what's going on at this actual wedding I mean she's there right she's a guest so she obviously is connected in some way and she might be very closely connected to it so she goes to who Jesus, because she knows he can fix it, right? Which is really cool. He's a problem solver. So let's look at the solution. Then we'll look at the result of the solution. Okay, no, I forgot that slide. Sorry, no guests can know that they run out of wine, and that's true. Okay, but Mary does know. And now Jesus knows. Okay, so let's look at the solution. Okay, Jesus is the solution, as you probably guessed. Look, look at verses 4 through 8 with me. And uh, we're going to see what he does about it. Okay, Jesus said to his mom, okay, his mom says, hey, they don't have any wine. And he says, woman... What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And because he says my hour has not yet come there, that's why I think and a lot of other people would say she's maybe trying to hint at him start beginning something, maybe even like starting setting up your kingdom. Like start now, Jesus. Prove them all wrong. Uh, but he says my hour has not yet come. In verse 5 he says, His mother said to the servants. So Jesus answers her, and then she looks at the servants, and she says, Whatever he says, you do it. Okay, now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom purification containing 20, 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Uh, so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So problem solved because when the head waiter tastes it, what does he taste? It's wine. It's wine. Okay, he changes it from water into wine. So the first thing we need to deal with here is Jesus' response, right? Sounds pretty, uh, sounds pretty rude to be like, your mom says, hey, Jesus, they have, you know, hey, Gatlin, they don't have any wine here. And you're like, woman, what does that have to do with me? You know, it kind of sounds pretty rude, uh, but it is not, okay? This is an idiom in Greek that does not translate exactly to English, okay? Uh, the title woman was not rude in that culture like it is in Western culture, first off. Okay, so saying, calling someone a woman was just calling them a woman. Like, it's not. It'd be more like in our culture, it's okay to call somebody a man, right? 
but for some reason, you know, it's not, it's rude to call somebody a woman though. So it'd be kind of, it just doesn't translate quite well. So the, the idiom doesn't exactly translate to English. It'd be, it's the idea of Jesus telling his mother, like, it's like, hey, mom, like this, this isn't really involving us. It's almost, you know, like that'd be almost more like how he'd say it today, you know, hey, mom, like this isn't really what we're supposed to do. This is their problem. This is the groom's problem. You know what I mean? So it's, a, it's actually respectful, even though in our culture it doesn't sound uh, respectful. So it just doesn't translate very well. So just know that Jesus is not being disrespectful uh, to his mom or anything like that. Okay, and then I think, again, I think this is partly saying, Jesus saying, hey, my hour's not yet come. What's the hour? I mean, what's the hour? That could be several different things. It could be my hour to start my ministry's not yet come. My hour to die on the cross and pay for the sins of the world and rise again is not yet come. Or my hour to set up my kingdom has not yet come. Because we don't know how much Mary knew, right? So maybe, like the disciples, she didn't quite understand everything yet. And she understood more and more as it went along. And so maybe she, he, she was kind of saying, hey, like, let's get this starting of the kingdom going. You know what I mean? Like, let's start getting you on the throne. And he said, my hour's not. You know what I mean? So that hour could be several different things. Um, and you guys can study that on your own and look at it. It's something good for you guys to dig into on your own. But it, we're not exactly sure. It could be several different things on that. So he says, my hour's not yet come. But then his mom, uh, Mary, she turns and she stops talking to Jesus. <laughs> She's like, okay, that's fine. But servants do exactly what he tells you to do. And I think part of this... Um, Part of this shows that she did care about the people at the wedding um, because, you know, she's like, okay, your hour's not yet come, but you can still fix this. Like, I, I know what you can do, and you can still fix this. And she says uh, to the slaves or the servants, do whatever he says. Um, and so, I know that's a really long pause. Sorry, I'm giving dramatic effect. Dramatic <laughs> effect. And so she says, hey, whatever you do, do it. And now there's these water pots over there. It goes directly to the water pots because it's going to show how Jesus fixes the problem. Okay, These are what the water pots may have looked like. And in, our, in my version, I don't know what your version says. How many of your versions says how much they held? Okay, so that is, uh, that's not necessarily in the translation. So these, each water pot could hold between 18 and 24. That's what the constable says each, ga- each one could hold 18 to 24 gallons. Okay, this says, my translation says 20 to 30. Is that what yours says too? Okay, so basically anywhere from 20 to 30 is a range, 18 to 24, somewhere in there. But the point of this isn't exactly how much, it's that they're big. Okay, they're not like, um, they're not like these little clay pots. You know what I mean? They're not like little cups. Like they're the big jars. And what these jars are used for is uh, in the Mosaic Law. There's a lot of ceremonial washings, right? You have to wash your hands before you eat. You have to wash your hands before this. You have to wash uh, a lot of times. And so these things would be filled with water. or They'd fill them up with water so that people throughout the feast in the seven-day fest, uh, wedding, they could wash when they were supposed to wash. They could be according to the law. Does that make sense? So these huge water pots are for washing. And Jesus says, hey, go fill them up. Because apparently there were some that had already been used. So he says, go fill them up to the brim. And they fill them up. Um, they do exactly what he says. And then, boom, problem solved. Right? Boom, problem solved. Jesus is the problem solver. Um, and he doesn't bring any attention, which we'll look at in a second. But he doesn't bring any attention to it at all. 
And we'll look at it again in a second, but nobody knows that he's actually done this except for the servants, disciples, and Mary. Okay, which again goes back to my point earlier. If nobody knows that this miracle happened, that means Mary must have been very close to the, the party, the wedding party, because none of the other guests knew that they were out of wine or else they would know the miracle happened, right? In fact, the head waiter, um, which is like the MC at a wedding, Okay, this MC guy, he didn't even know. It doesn't look like. Because he's like, ah, here's the good wine that you kept this whole time, right? He doesn't even know. And so Mary, in deductive reasoning, I think she was very close to this family. Okay, And Jesus may have been close to these people too, um, which is interesting. It's really cool. But anyway, problem solved, nobody knows about. So what is the result? Let's look at the results of the problem being solved. Okay, So there's a problem. Jesus solved it. What comes from that? What are the results of that? And this is in uh, the rest of 9, 10, and 11. It says, When the head waiter, or the MC guy, okay, when he tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from. He didn't know that Jesus did a miracle. <clears throat> but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Okay, So the servants know. We, we get that right off. Okay, Then the head waiter called to the bridegroom. Okay, Remember, this is the guy whose neck is on the line. Okay, and I'm sure the bridegroom knew that they were out of, out of wine. Okay, so he's scrambling or whatever. So he calls the bridegroom, and who knows what the bridegroom's thinking. He could be thinking, oh man, this is where it comes. He, know, he found out we're out of wine, and I'm going to be disgraced in front of everybody. Uh, but he, he calls the bridegroom, the bridegroom comes over there, and then this MC, this head waiter guy, he says to him, every man serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely. And he's like, oh boy, here it comes. He knows we're out. And he says, then serves a poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So I'm just imagining being in, in the spot of the bridegroom, right? Probably feel like a weight up yeah, I mean, I would, right? Because, I mean, this whole time you're like, oh man, I am in trouble. I would have thought he was being sarcastic. Yeah, I mean, I might have too, right? And so you're like, but he says, hey, not only do we still have wine, but it's, it's the best wine. You save the best wine for last. And why is it the best wine, do you think? Because Jesus, Jesus made it, right? Everything he makes is the best, right? And so he made the best one, and he saved that best one until now. This is the—I'll uh, going to stop there, and I'll read 11 in a second. So Jesus makes the best one, okay? I thought of this uh, yesterday as I was going through, and I was just thinking about this. What—I guess it's up there. What is the best wine? Aged. It's aged wine, right? Usually, right? And so aged wine, Jesus had to make something that was old. Which is just interesting because when you think about like creation and stuff, uh, a lot of people like struggle with the fact that God made the world and He made it old. Like they struggle with the fact that He made trees that were already grown and like they they so they like date things. And be like, it's just this creation thing. You can look it up later. But Jesus can make anything. Like He doesn't just have to make new wine. It, I mean, it is new, but it's also old wine. It's like aged wine. I don't know. It's just hit me. It's just like cool. Like God, he can do anything. Like he doesn't just like, oh man, okay, here we go. I'm going to try to make some wine and see if it works. You know what I mean? Like he made old wine. It's, it's just really cool to me. Maybe it's not that cool, but it's cool to me. So um, as we go through this, okay, there's a couple other questions we've got to answer, kind of sidetrack stuff. But some people say that this was not alcohol, okay, but it was. Some people say... Uh, so there's two extremes. Some people say that this is not alcohol, act non-alcoholic. Okay, but first off, the the head waiter's like, you know, he serves the uh, the poor wine or the good wine first, and then the poor wine when everybody's drunk. 
Okay, so it was definitely uh, wine. But then some people go the other extreme and they say, well, that must mean Jesus got drunk and was all, and neither one is true. Okay, Jesus didn't get drunk. Okay, we know that because that's wrong, right? And, but he also did make wine and, I, and it was alcoholic. So there's no, uh, or alcohol, it had alcohol in it. So it's, uh, don't go to extremes, okay? Because there's, cause there's some people that say all alcohol, and for you guys, all alcohol is sin. Okay, by the way, because none of you are old. And I think it's very dangerous, and I don't see any reason necessarily why I drink it. But anyway, all that aside, uh, some people say, well, alcohol is sinful, and because that's my view, I'm going to put the Bible on and fit it into that. So that, that, grape, that was grape juice that he made. Okay, and then some people say, well, I don't think it's wrong to get drunk. And I think partying is fine, and all this stuff that goes with it, I think all that's fine. And so they take that and they try and fit the Bible into that and they say, Jesus, look, he was at a wedding and he was getting you know, drunk and all who knows what else he was doing. See what I'm saying? So they take these views that they have and they try and fit the Bible into views and that's not how we interpret Scripture. We go to the Bible and we see what it says and we interpret it that way. And then we base our theology, our doctrine and what we know off that. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's a, that's a side note. It's all bonus stuff. Okay, but the first result is that the, he made the best wine. The second result, we need to ask a question in order to get to it. The question is why? Why would Jesus do this miracle? And why is John recording it? Okay, because at the end of the book, John says there's many other signs that Jesus did. But these I've written to you, so you believe, right? And so, why is Jesus doing this miracle? Why is John recording it? Okay, and in order to answer that... We have to ask who. Okay, so we got to ask why, then we got to ask who, uh, who, then why. So who knew about it? We've already talked about it. Can anybody name the people? Mary, the servants, and the disciples. Mary, the servants, and disciples are the only three groups of people that we know knew, okay, other than Jesus himself, right? These are the only guys that knew. The guests did not know for sure. The head waiter strongly indicates that the head waiter doesn't know. And the groom... It seems like he may have known that they were out of wine, but didn't know where the new wine came from. Okay? Um, and then that goes for maybe some of the other wedding party. I mean, I don't know exactly all the ins and outs. So maybe the groom and like his, his mom and dad or something, maybe they knew they ran out of wine, but they didn't know where the new wine came from, stuff like that. Uh, but the only person who actually, persons who actually knew that we know for sure, the disciples, the servants, because it specifically says the servants know, and Mary. Okay? So those are the who. Um, the question then becomes, uh, well, we already, we already asked that question. How many disciples were they? I think there were five, and I think those five knew. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, we'll look at it. Um, so Mary, the five, we'll say the five, and the servants all know. Okay, now look at verse 11, okay, because this is kind of the result. This is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested or shown his glory and his disciples believed in him so there's two results that we see right there okay one glory shown okay glory shown jesus shows a little bit about who he is by changing water into wine right what is it what are some things that shows us about jesus he cares about other people okay he cares okay what else he's powerful he's, he's powerful who, can, who in here can change water into wine Right? No one, right? We don't know how, you know, he, you know, how he's going to do that. Okay, anything else? 
that he solves problems responsibly. Yeah, he he solves problems responsibly. That's he good. Didn't, like go out and say, look, everyone's out of wine, but I hear I brought more. Right. Yeah. He didn't take the glory for it. Humble, right, in the way that he solves it. So these things, okay, his glory is shown. I think specifically in his power. Okay, in his caring for sure, in his humility, but I think especially in his power. And so his glory is shown, and it's shown to servants, disciples, Mary. Okay, which Mary's probably already, probably already seen a lot of it, right? So glory is shown, and then disciples believe, right? So what are the disciples believing in? This is, this is the uh, interesting part. What do the disciples believe here? Okay, now, out of those five guys... Did any of them already believe in Jesus? That Jesus specifically, I think all five of them believed that there was a coming Messiah and a Messiah would come. But did any of those five specifically believe that Jesus is that Messiah? Yeah. Okay. How? It, yeah. Okay. Nathaniel. Fig tree. He said that he said you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Yeah. So Nathaniel, for sure, right? Possibly Philip, right? And then Andrew, right? All three of them have verbiage actually saying. Something along those lines. Okay, Nathaniel's obviously the most adamant about it. Um, and, uh, John is not recorded to have said anything yet. Okay, Peter is not recorded to have said anything yet. So, what do they believe? I think that this is saying that these five believe in Jesus as the Messiah at this point. And I think it's saying that because I think John and Peter now believe. Okay. I think the other three already believed, and I think now John and Peter do. And so John, the one writing it, is like, especially it would be dear to his heart, right? This whole thing would be dear to his heart if this is when he was recognized Jesus as the Messiah, like at this wedding. And so I think this wedding happens, this happens, and him and Peter are like, okay. And then, it's, then it says all five of us now believe in Jesus as a Messiah. Okay, that is, that is what I think is going on here. I think another reason might also say the disciples believe is it just gives the three who already believed more proof that he is the Messiah. Yeah, and it does. It does. Yeah, you're right. Um, and so the other thing we can talk about when we can think about, how many of you guys have seen The Chosen? All right, so what is it like? Episode, I don't know, one or two. I don't know. But there's a what? There's, this is in there, right? And some of the servants believed in that. Am I right? I think they had maybe a disciple come out of the church or something. We don't know about all that. But some of the servants could have believed as well. It doesn't specifically say that, but some of them could have, or none of them could have. I don't know, but some of them could have believed here too, which is just something to mull over and think about in your own mind. Okay, but the glory was shown. Uh, that was part of the result, and then the ultimate result was belief. Okay, the ultimate result was belief. Why did John write this book and give us these eight signs? He tell he tells us at the end of the book. Show us how we might be saved. Yeah, so we so we believe, right? And so this first sign, and we're we're gonna look at we're gonna look at a bunch of well we're gonna look at eight signs. Well, I didn't even capitalize John there. It's pretty sad. So we're gonna show you eight signs, or John's gonna show us eight signs. And so something for you guys to be thinking about in your own mind as you're going through and as you're studying this. Remember why he gave us the signs to believe, and then look at each one of these problems that he solves by, with a miracle, and see who believes and what they believe. Okay. It's interesting. It's interesting as we go through, we'll look at it, okay? Uh, but why is he showing us these signs? So that we believe. And he says, hey, and the disciples believe at this point. And I think that means, again, all five of those guys that are with him believe that he is the Messiah, okay? <clears throat> so what's the impact, okay? What's the impact, okay? Sometimes with, like, um, narrative, 
it's a little bit like we're like, man, it's harder to find application and stuff with it. But I was I was renewing my mind with this stuff this week and last week. Um, there's several things that I think of. First, obviously, trust in Jesus for eternal life. Believe in Him for eternal life if you haven't. Okay, this book shows us who He is, so that we will do that. Okay, but I know most of you in here, and I know most of you have done that. Um, so there's a couple other things I want you to think about. Okay, He's proven Himself to be a miracle worker, and His results are the best. Okay, His results are the best. So keep that in your mind. Okay, even if the timing is not our timing, or if the results seem iffy to us, the results are the best. Okay, so that bridegroom, the timing may not have been his timing, right? But the results were the best. Okay, he's perfect in his balance of giving us what is best and giving us compassion. Okay, so think about it this way. What's best for us is not always what we want or what's easiest, correct? Okay, so he's, he gives us that and we know that, right? We know that God gives us what is best for us, not always what, like disciplining a child, right? It's what's best, even though it, it may not feel good. All right, so he gives us what's best. But the, the hope and the, I think the cool thing about that is he does it compassionately. Because when Jesus solves this problem with the wine, it's not with arrogance. It's not with I told you so. It's not with, you know what I mean? He didn't come out publicly and say, all right, guys, I'm going to turn water into wine. Be amazed, right? It's not with arrogance. It's not with pride. He does it compassionately and in a way that solves a problem for who? A lot of people, right? The groom, the guests, the, the head waiter, uh, the servants who are probably going to get, I mean, they probably are on the bad end of the stick, right? Because their wine ran out. They don't know what to do. So there's a bunch of people that he solves this problem with, or for, and he does it in a compassionate way. Okay? And when we have problems, okay, let's run to him because he can solve our problems the best way and with compassion, which seems sometimes counterintuitive, but he can, and he does. He solves my problems compassionately, and he doesn't leave anything out. Like, it's still the best, right? But it's not so much the best that he leaves out compassion. It's just this perfect balance that God has in dealing with mankind uh, that I think is something we can renew our minds with, and I think for our application, we can run to him with our problems. And... Um, I know sometimes you have to define problems, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but like a lot of times a problem has to be a big problem, in my mind, a big problem, before I'll actually go to God with it. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm like, okay, I'll do disc golf again, okay? I lost my disc, okay? I threw my, I'm not, not like, I always lose my disc. But I lost my disc, okay? I, I'm, and I'm out here on the disc golf course and... Do I run to God? Or is that like lame? Right? Do I pray to God and say, God, help me to find this disc? Or do I be like, no, that's like, God's, God doesn't have time for that. That's stupid. And it, and it kind of is, right? But do we run? Does He want us to run to Him with that? Mm-hmm. Is He the problem solver even over a small thing like a $10 Frisbee? Yeah. Or does He not care about that? He cares, he cares right? And if we run to him in that, do you think when my grandpa's diagnosed with cancer, I'm going to run to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's run to him with everything, every little problem that we have, even if it's like that's not a real problem, I can handle it. It's like, well, maybe you can, but let's get our pride out of the way and let's run to him with every single 
little problem that we have, okay? Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.